morning. Good. Good. So um, we've been in Genesis for a couple of months now. Uh, and we've gotten all the way, if you've been here, you know, we've gotten up through um, the Tower of Babel, right? And then the genealogy that follows. So that's the end of chapter 11 in Genesis. And chapter 12, we start into Abram and Abraham and, and his whole story, and then we're going to continue on from there. So we're, we're taking a little bit of a break right now from Genesis, and we're going to pick up in a few weeks with Abraham. But we wanted, um, if you recall, our memory verse which has been uh, Romans 5, 18 to 21. I'm sure you all have it memorized, so don't worry. The test won't be hard. Um, just going to have you come up one by one instead of preaching today and do your memory verse, and then we'll grade you. So I've got cards to hand out. It's going to go great. It's going to go great. Uh, it is, that wouldn't be much of a memory test, would it, Kaylin? <laughs> I don't know. What, what, what I want to do today is explain the, the memory verse why we picked it, and then what does it say? What does it tell us? Um, what are we supposed to learn from it? So I'm going to preach about our memory verse today and, and actually a few uh, verses preceding it to give it the proper context. But the reason we chose this memory verse is because it connects Adam to Jesus. So we started in Genesis, Genesis 1, and we met Adam, and Adam sets the tone for well, for a good chunk of history, but certainly the very beginning there in Genesis. And so that memory verse, we wanted to connect Adam to Jesus. It'd be really easy to read Genesis if you did it in isolation from the rest of the Bible and not realize the connection that there is between Adam and Jesus, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, how, how Genesis sets the groundwork eventually for Jesus. And so there's strong linkages there. You, you probably have noticed that although we've been preaching through Genesis, I joked with Matt earlier this week, it seems like we've spent as much time in the New Testament as we have in Genesis, right? We'll go, we'll start in Genesis, and then we'll end up in Acts, or we'll end up in one of the Gospels. And that's not an accident. There are strong linkages there, and this memory verse is part of that. So, uh, Kelly's going to come up and read in just a moment, but before she does, I just want to set a little context. So we're in Romans chapter 5. You can go ahead and turn there if you're using the Bible that's sitting on the chairs. It's page 942. And Romans, uh, as, as is the case with a lot of letters in the New Testament, was written by Paul. And obviously Romans, Paul's writing to Rome, but these specific chapters, chapters 3 to 7, are really talking to the ethnic Jews living in Rome. And Paul's making a case about why things have changed for them as they are now Christians, even though they were ethnically Jewish. So chapter 3, he talks to the Jews about how, unlike previously, before Christ had come, they really have no special advantage. Before they had the advantage of the law, they were God's chosen people. They don't have that advantage now because salvation is not through the law, but salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. That's his kind of culminating point in 3 verses 21 to 29. What's the point of that? Obeying laws can't get you right with God. That's what he's telling you. Obeying laws can't get you right with God. And he's going to build on that here in chapter 5. In chapter 4, he makes a case in point out of Abram. 
He was the first Jew, right? The Jewish nation was founded through Abraham. And he was righteous by faith, not by the law. So he's an example of this. There was no law yet, right? Moses hadn't come and brought the law. His faith came before circumcision. So his righteousness came by faith. And the same can then be said to be true of the Gentiles. And therefore, it can be said to be true of us. So there is nothing special anymore about the Jews having the law or being set, set apart. We are set apart through Christ, not by the law. And that's really what we see here in chapter 5. His main driving point here in chapter 5 is going to be that justification changes everything. Justification changes everything. And he does that by talking about Adam and talking about Jesus. And so he's going to explain to us what is common about Adam and Jesus and then what makes them radically different. So as you're listening to Kelly, where's Kelly? There she is. Come on up, Kelly. As you're listening to Kelly read, she's going to read starting in verse 12 uh, down through 21. Look for how Adam and Jesus, what they have in common, and then how they are radically, radically different. And that's what we're going to talk about. So, Kelly, there you go. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, Grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Here, I'll do it.
All right, before I start, I'm just going to pray real quick. We need God's help. I do. I know that. Dear Lord, thank you that we can gather together this morning to hear your word preached, Lord, to hear uh, the very words of God. Lord, I pray that you would help me to be a conduit for your word, Lord, that anything that is of my own soul, Lord, and not from you, um, that that would not go forth, Lord, that that would not be heard, Lord. I pray that you would make your intent for this passage for Christ Church here in Mount Airy in 2021, that you would make it clear to those that are listening, Lord, that you would soften their hearts, give them ears to hear, Lord, what is from you, Lord, and where, where it impacts their lives, Lord. Your, Lord, your word goes forth and, and makes change, Lord. It is, it is living and active, Lord, and so we pray that it will be living and active in our hearts, Lord. Uh, so, Lord, I pray that you would come and, and work in us this morning, Lord, through your word. And, Lord, I pray for our children in the back, Lord, that your word would be working back there in their hearts, Lord, that you would... In your plan, and your kindness, Lord, that you would save our children, Lord. We pray for that, Lord. Those, those children, just like we do, they need, they need you. They need a Savior, Lord. And so we pray that you would reveal that to them, even this morning. Pray all this in your Son's holy name. Amen. Okay, so we start in verse 12. And I think Paul is, as I said, he's setting up a, a comparison and a, and a contrast of Adam and of Jesus. You remember doing compare and contrast in literature in high school or in middle school? I hated compare and contrast. <laughs> but I think Paul really lays it out fairly clearly here. How are Jesus and Adam alike? Not much. How are they different? Drastically. So that's what we're going to look at. What do they have in common? And where are they radically different? So the comparison, or the commonality here, the commonality between them, the compare part of this, is about representation. And the key verse for this is in uh, verse 14. The transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. A type of the one who was to come. So Adam is a type of the one who is to come. And who is the one to come? Jesus. So Adam is a type of Christ. And we talked about types of Christ before. And as soon as I read this, I thought about Joshua. And I thought about the judges when we read through Judges. Lots of examples of types of Christ, right, in, in, in the Old Testament. Some of the, some of the heroes, if you will, of the Old Testament. God raises them up. He uses them to deliver his people in some way. And then, and to show his glory. But ultimately, all of those heroes fall short. They're flawed because they're human, right? They're not Jesus. But they, they echo some... Uh, they, they foretell of Jesus' coming in some, some small way. So we, 
talked, you can think of Moses or David or Boaz in the story of, of Ruth. But Adam's different. He's not a type of Christ in the, in the way that those Old Testament figures are a, a type of Christ. Adam is a type of the one who was to come, meaning that he represented, represents us before God. He is our representative. So he's not a type of Christ like Moses or Joshua. Adam is a type of Christ or is like Christ in that Adam represents all humans in his fall like Jesus represents us before God. So if you're a Christian today, Jesus is your representative before God. He looks through Jesus at you. And so Jesus is your representative. But before you're a Christian, or if you're not a Christian, you were represented by Adam. When Adam fell, he was judged by God, and since he represented us, when he fell, we all fell. And now, if you're a Christian, if you've accepted Christ as your Savior, Jesus represents us before God, and we therefore are seen with his perfect righteousness. His righteousness is ours, Adam's fall was ours. That's how Adam is like Christ or is a type of Christ in, in that representative way. That's where the commonality ends. In case you were wondering in this comparison of Adam and Jesus, it's not good for Team, team Adam. It's, it's not looking good. Paul goes right in at the stark differences in verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. So he starts by using these two terms. Trespass, that's Adam's act, right? Adam's act, the fall, the original sin. And free gift, that's Christ's act. The Greek word there is charisma. And Paul uses this term repeatedly to summarize all that is a part of what Jesus has done through his perfect life, death, and resurrection. So just to summarize that, what, what's included in the free gift? We're justified. We're made righteous and receive unmerited favor. We're given eternal life. And all of this is a divine gift of grace. It's like he uses that term free gift because he wants us to get all of that and he doesn't want to have to repeat himself ad nauseum so he packages it all up in this free gift and puts a nice bow on it so he can use that term everywhere and we remember all of those concepts are packaged up in it. How amazing, how great, how glorious that is. What about trespass? That's Adam's rebellion against God. By eating the fruit of the tree of good and evil, he rebelled against exactly what God had commanded him not to do. He didn't have the law, but God had given clear instruction not to eat it, and Adam chose to do it anyway. That's rebellion, and that is what the trespass is. Rebellion to do what is contrary to what God said. This is sin. Now, we're all very familiar with sin, with rebellion. 
We've all done this. We've known what is right and chosen to do something other than what is right. We've done something or we've said something or we've thought something that we know is contrary to what we see in Scripture. Clear commands from our Lord, and yet we've chosen to do something other than that. Maybe, maybe it's lying for you or getting angry or lust. You give in to those temptations. You make the choice. That is rebellion. All of this is evidence that you are descended from Adam. Have you ever, have you ever thought, I just really don't think it's fair that I'm lumped in with Adam, that I get, I get the judgment that Adam got? I got news for you. When you've been in that same situation that Adam was in, where God gave you clear instruction, and then the temptation came to rebel against that clear instruction, you've made the same choice. So if you thought, I'd have done it better, Adam, you haven't. You've chosen many, many times to rebel against God, just like Adam. So we've got trespass, and we've got free gift. And for verses 15 through 17, Paul's going to line these up and show how the free gift is so much better. He uses the term much more, abundance, much, much better than the trespass. So I think he does this in three main ways. So look at verse 15 with me. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So we got the trespass. One man, one act of rebellion. That's what we're talking about in the trespass. Adam and that original sin. The free gift. One man, again, kind of the same. One man, Jesus Christ, this time. But his free gift, it had bounded for many acts of rebellion. So it is more, it is much more, because it covers not one act of rebellion, but many acts of rebellion. And consider, this is not every person in this room, every person in the United States, all people around all of the world for all time, all of their sin. That's the scale we're talking about. So this first fundamental difference is scale. We've got the one man and the one sin. We've got Jesus Christ and every sin for all time from every person forever. Now, I'm an engineer, so I heard this and I said, well, this is a math problem. So I went to the Google later and said, how many people have lived ever for all time? Now, I don't know how Google would possibly know the right answer to that, but it gave me a number and I'm going with it for now. So we don't need to argue whether this is the right number or not, okay? But the number it gave me is 107 billion people, 107 billion. So I thought, let's do the math. If 107 million people, and let's just say they lived on average for 60 years, that's probably wrong. 
It's probably less than that. I don't even know how you would come up with that, the average lifespan of people over all of time, but I chose 60. 60 years, okay? And let's just say, on average, again, I'm making this number up, but let's just say, on average, that's one sin per minute, okay? Now, Bree, can you put that up? So th this is my calculation, okay? 107 billion people, 60 years of life per person, one sin per minute. All right, in the next slide. So if you know, uh, if anyone's doing algebra, Andrew, Eleanor, you can do this, right? Cancellation of terms. So we need to convert minutes to hours. All right, so we come out with this number, and that's in scientific notation because as soon as you get to a number that big, calculator says no, right? So uh, I had Bree look this up for me. How do you say that number? So hit the next slide. All right, so that's what that number uh, looks like. All right, so I believe, I'm going to get this right, right? So that's 3 quadrillion, 374 trillion, 356 billion, 200 million. You know what? I should have had you up here. Read it for me. Uh, okay. Three quintillion, I'm 374 quadrillion, 356 trillion, 200 billion. There you go. All right. So, making all the assumptions that I definitely got wrong, that's the comparison that we're to draw here. Adam's one sin and that giant long number that JT read out for us. And that's so far. The world didn't end yet. There are more people yet to be born as sinners, and they will continue to sin. How much more? How much more? That's the difference between the one trespass and the free gift of grace. Number two. Verse 16, I'm calling this the direct result. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. The trespass, it brings condemnation. The free gift brings justification. What's condemnation? Let's define that. I defining, I'm defining it from, uh, from a couple of sources, but I, I'm going to say to be pronounced guilty, to be sentenced to punishment. And what's that punishment? It's very clearly death. What about justification? Now, I'm going to ask someone here, don't make me get the coin and the shirts and do my best Matt illustration imitation. What's on the coin? Does anybody remember when we talk about justification? Forgiven. Good. What's the other side? Clothed in righteousness. That's right. Forgiven. We're pronounced innocent. Not, not guilty, but innocent. 
blameless through justification. And then we're morally neutral, right? We have no longer have enmity with God, but we're not done yet in justification. We're clothed. We're given the righteousness of Christ presented spotless and covered in glory. That's what it means to be justified. So what's the point? Jesus' free gift doesn't just prevent punishment. It isn't a stay of execution. We're made innocent and given his glory, and not just for one sin, but for every sin. Forever. It's a state that can't be lost when you stumble again. It is, as verse 21 says, righteousness leading to eternal life. So this second, Jesus is greater, the free gift is greater because it is for all time, for all your sins, forever and ever, versus the trespass, that one pronouncement of death and punishment. Covered that and every single other one too. Verse 17, as we compare the free gift and the trespass. If, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So I'm calling this the reign, the difference, the reign, not R-A-I-N, R-E-I-G-N, like to reign as a king. So what does the trespass bring? The trespass brings a reign of death. And we've talked about this a bunch, particularly back when we talked about the fall in chapter 3 of Genesis. The reign of death is not just death for humanity or death for one individual. It is death for all of creation. That single sin, that single trespass, went out like a shot and spread throughout all of creation, condemning all all things to death. I heard one, uh, one sermon where they talked about the law of entropy. Everything is just in the laws of physics is moving towards death. I heard another where they talked about how um, the, the comparison of how this has shaped all of our society. Think about we have government. Why do we have government? Because people break laws and we need ways to enforce those laws. That's all an effect of the one trespass. If we lived in a sinless world, we don't need government. What about economics? Why do we have economics? Because we have scarce resources and we have to figure out how those are going to get allocated to different people. It's a problem of scarcity. In a sinless world, without the single trespass, there's no scarcity. There's no need for economics. There's abundance. There's plenty for all. All of our society, everything is moving towards death. That is the reign of death. That's pretty staggering consequences. So what does the free gift do that is so much more than that? It brings in a reign in life. 
And I found that particularly interesting, the way it's phrased. It's not a reign of life or that life reigns. It's a reign in life. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Who's going to reign? Those who receive the free gift. You and I. Those who receive the free gift are going to reign in life. The free gift not only reverses the effects of the reign of death, converting death to life, but it restores God's image bearers back to reigning over the earth in his, in his stead. That's the position that Adam originally had in the garden and forfeited in trespass. God restores the effects and restores those who image him through Jesus Christ back to that position to reign again on the earth. And we, of course, know that this is not complete yet. We see fallenness all over our world, as we just talked about, but we know from Revelations that eventually, when Jesus returns, this world will be replaced with a new heaven and a new earth that will be perfect. And that reversal will be complete. Much more is the reign in life than the reign of death. So that's the contrast. It's pretty stark. How much greater is Jesus and his free gift than the trespass? In scale, in the direct result, and in the eternal reign of life over death. Paul then moves in verse 18, so we're now actually to our memory verse that you've all got memorized. And he really summarizes these points, right, in verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's righteousness, now the law, uh, by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Excuse me. We're all in Adam, whether we like it or not. And all of us are either then in Jesus or not. So you are in Adam from birth, by default. That is your representative before Christ, or before God. And then you choose. Am I then in Christ? Does Christ then step forward and stand between God and Adam and me? Or not? Am I left with just Adam? If Adam represents you before God... You have that inherited sin. And we're all guilty and deserving of death. But if you are in Christ, then Christ steps in front and presents his righteousness before God. By default, you're born into that representation of Adam and inherit his disobedience, the one trespass, condemnation to be made for sinners. But you have the choice, through faith in Jesus Christ, to choose new representation whose one act brings about 
justification, and righteousness. Now, God knows our heart's knee-jerk reaction is going to be to all this. I don't want to be associated with either of these options. I'd like the secret third way. What's that secret third way? It's a way that makes us feel better about ourselves, not so needy. I don't need Adam. I don't need Jesus. Paul seems to anticipate this in verse 20, which otherwise kind of seems a little bit out of place. So look at verse 20. Now the law, so we're talk, we've talked about this comparison, and then Paul jumps straight to the law. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Hey, Paul, what about the law? I don't need Adam. I don't need Jesus. I'm going to follow the law. Then I'm good, right? Now remember, as you read that, consider his audience, those ethnic Jews, right? Their entire life, their entire culture has been centered around the law. The law is what makes you righteous. And really, isn't this what we think too? I want to get a promotion, I do good work. I want to get an A, I do good work. I follow the rules, I obey. That's how, that's how we, uh, we, we earn goodness, right? If you do bad, if you disobey, you get punished. If you do good, you get goodness. Paul answers this in what must seem to be crazy for them. The law came in to increase the trespass. Not to save you, not to build righteousness, but to increase the trespass. What? Paul, I don't think so. You must have misspoke. Maybe you don't know the law. Remember who Paul is? Major Pharisee. He was, uh, before he was converted, he was going after the Christians for not obeying the law. He's pretty familiar with the law. Obviously, the law clearly tells us what's right and wrong. Without it, we wouldn't know what, what's good and what's bad. We'd be left on our own. But once we know something is a law and then break it, we're even more guilty. If you speed and honestly didn't know what the speed limit was, that's kind of a little different than if you saw that sign and sped anyway. That's the point Paul's making here. There's a difference between knowing the law and not knowing the law. I uh, used to live down Montgomery Village, and uh, we had HOA, Homeowners Association, covenants. Not, not one of the major reasons I moved up to Mount Airy, but <laughs> it's not not a reason. I, I think the first time we really came uh, into understanding, now this was our first home, and really understanding what uh, the HOA covenants meant was when we uh, looked at our house numbers and the light on the front of our house and said, those are terrible. We need to replace them. Now, I, I wish I had a picture. I, I looked. I couldn't find one. But the, the house numbers were on this piece of wood that looks like it was a scrap during construction in 1974. 
that they had picked up out of the dirt, painted white, stapled these numbers that were really too big to go on it, and stuck it up on the wall, and no one had touched it in the 30-some years since it was placed up there. It was rotting. The numbers were falling off. It looked terrible. And uh, my sister had just gotten us this really nice embossed metal number plate that we wanted to put up. It looks great. Justy picked out a new light fixture because the light fixture that was up there was probably original from 1974 as well, and it was looking pretty dank. So we put that up. looked fantastic. We were so happy with it. It was one of the, one of the first exterior improvements we did. Probably three weeks go by, and I get a letter in the mail that says, you have violated covenants in regards to your house numbers and your light. The house numbers must be four inches tall. They must be on a piece of wood that is painted white. It can, must be at a diagonal. Uh, they can be, uh, you know, of no differentiation, basically, than the ones that were up there. So don't even bother trying. Oh, and the light must be a coach-style light. It can only be of gold or bronze, and it must be four inches in diameter but square, which I was like, how does something in diameter but square? But whatever. <laughs> they had all these rules that I could not, we couldn't follow, other than to put the original things back up on the wall. And that's what we ended up doing when we moved, because otherwise our house couldn't have sold. I had no solution, at least in my view. I had no solution. Those covenants boxed me in such that the law, the HOA, had given me no solution. I had no hope for change. That's what ends up with the law. It shows us that we have no solution, and it proves us wrong. So your option, your secret third option of the law, you can't be saved by the law. That's the whole point. The point of the law was to show you that you can't save yourself because you have no chance of following the law perfectly, and that's what is required. The purpose of the law is to increase the trespass, show you how desperately in need of a Savior that you are because you have no chance to follow the law. That ultimate effect is that grace abounds. Look again. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now that's nuts. This isn't how we understand things. Paul's saying the more bad you do, the more good comes from it. That is the opposite of everything that we know. If you get caught speeding, going 20 miles an hour over the speed limit, your fine is greater than if you got caught speeding 10 miles an hour over the speed limit. And if you get caught speeding 100 miles an hour, instead of a fine, it's a fine, plus you're picking up trash on the side of the highway and you don't have a license anymore. The punishment just keeps getting more as you do more wrong. This stands out on its head. The more bad we do, the more grace abounds, and the more Jesus is glorified. For God, more sin means more grace for those who embrace 
the free gift. Do you believe that? When you sin, is your first inclination more grace, more glory for Christ? Or is it condemnation? Ah, I messed up again. I did this again. This stands it on its head. More grace. More grace. More glory for Christ. Where your sin abounds, his grace, his glory abounds all the more. You cannot outsin his grace. Now, you might go, wait a minute. So, is the best way for me to then glorify God to just sin a whole bunch? Kind of seems like the logical conclusion. Romans is like the logical book, right? So that makes sense, right? Well, Paul, Paul saw where you were going. Chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Now that's a sermon for another day. But by no means gives you your answer. We no longer hunger for sin. We sin. We mess up. We are still sinners this side of eternity. But we no longer hunger for sin. So why all, all the grace? It saves us. But the point all along is God's glory. That's why we're here. This is how God gets the most glory. He reaches down in the vat of sin and rebellious men and women and pulls you out, cleans you off, adopts you, and places you in the heavenly places. That is his plan and his method to bring himself the most glory. We've talked a lot about God being a fixer, right? That's what he does. He fixes what is broken. Now, you can imagine in my house with uh, seven children, a lot of things get broken. I end up fixing a lot of things. Toys, bikes, toilets, walls, you name it. We're fixing it. I have a to-be-fixed box on my workbench of just things that need to be fixed. With a high degree of regularity, I get something in there that I can't fix. It almost always is something plastic, and the plastic breaks, and no amount of super glue is going to hold that thing in place once I give it back to a child that wants to play with it. It's broken beyond repair. Any attempt to repair it is a fruitless, fruitless endeavor. There is nothing more broken in this world than a sinful man or woman made in the image of God with the expressed purpose of imaging that God who instead rebels and chooses sin. And because there is nothing more broken than that, there is nothing more fixed than when that man or woman is made perfect through the redemptive work of Christ. That's the ultimate work of repair and a job that no one else can do. Every sin is met with more grace. Grace is magnified, and then when grace is magnified, the grace giver gets the fame. 
When the law increases our sin and grace rises to surpass that law breaking, grace is magnified. And when grace is magnified, the grace giver gets all the attention, all the praise, all the glory. When Jesus represents us, not our works, not Adam, grace is magnified. And Jesus gets the glory. What an amazing God. What a system he has developed here beyond anything we could have thought of. We get all the blessing. We get the free gift. We get the justification. We get the righteousness. We get the, gra- we get the grace. We get Jesus. He gets the glory. All of humanity is too broken to fix itself. For one person, for any team of people working around the clock to come up with a fix, no amount of study, medicine, technology, research, awaiting future developments, or returning to the ways of the past will remedy the trespass. But in Christ, the free gift, all who call his name are fixed. None are without hope. None is unfixable. And the depths of brokenness Bring more and more glory to Christ when you are presented as fixed, as justified, as reconciled to God, righteous and made perfect. His grace abounds all the more. If you're here this morning and you are in Christ, I think the application of this passage is clear, like we talked about a minute ago. When you sin, which you will, until he comes again, our reaction should not be condemnation. There is no condemnation in Christ. We should cry out with joy that his grace abounds for another sin today and somehow he is more glorified because of it. Marvel and be amazed at how your sin is transformed through his grace into glory. If you aren't in Christ, if you don't call yourself a Christian, then you're left with the question of who represents me before God? Is it Adam, the, the trespassing, flawed human being, just like you, whose one act brought sin into the whole world, brought condemnation and death? Or maybe it's your performance with the law. Maybe you think, I can do better than Adam. I can follow the law. You can't. You haven't. You already failed. All of us have. The case Paul presents really doesn't leave much of a choice. Why would anyone choose Adam or choose yourself and your performance before the law to be your representative when Jesus is your option? Why? We love our sin. We don't want to let it go. Paul says later in chapter 6, that we, before we're saved, we're enslaved to our sins. And that's what it means to stay in Adam, to stay in the law. You're enslaved to it. If you don't know the answer to the question, am I in Christ? The answer is no. But the good news this morning and every morning is that it's a free gift of grace through Jesus Christ who brings justification, removes the bad of your sin and restores you relationally with God and then clothes you in his righteousness, gives you all his good 
so that before God, you're not neutral. You are good and perfect and blameless and spotless. And then you get to reign in life for eternity. It's a free gift. But as it says in the passage, it must be received. So if you're facing this choice, talk to the person you came with, talk to the person next to you, come talk to me. Love to talk with you more about that choice. Love to pray with you. Let's pray together now. Dear Lord, we are amazed by your grace. We are amazed that you, through your free gift, can take our sin and out of nothing that we bring other than that sin, you can justify us, Lord. You can make us right with you and then clothe us in righteousness, Lord. And you can then turn that sin into glory for yourself, Lord. Help us to see that, Lord. Help us to see our sin clearly. Help us to hate our sin, Lord. But help us to see clearly that every time we sin, your grace covers that, Lord. And that you are more glorified, Lord. How amazing and miraculous that is. Much more is your free gift than the trespass. Help us to know that. Help us to believe it. Help us to see it. And Lord, I pray anyone here this morning that is not in Christ, Lord, Lord, that you would open their eyes to their need for a Savior, Lord. Their need for the free gift, Lord. That they stand before you now with the condemnation and the death they have inherited through Adam, Lord. There is no performance in the law that can save them. Only the free gift of Jesus Christ, Lord. So, Lord, we pray that you would bring understanding, Lord, that you would open hearts, and, Lord, that you would um, show the need for the free gift and the salvation that is in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. We pray all this in your Son's holy name. Amen.